don't have to get rid of these things are great. Those are like it's podcast gold. I get to put these things in the beginning. Yeah, that's a little it's a little sneak peek. That's where you say that you're putting your finger in Matt Boyd's bunghole or the reset last time. <laughs> and there's our start. What's up guys? <laughs> Welcome to The Bunghole of Matt Boyd. Three guys, one couch, episode is this four or five? Uh five? Should be five. Started week five. All right. Five, we'll five. call it five. Even if it's four, let's call it five. And we have a sexy new guest this week. So Frankie still hasn't come back from dinner from last <laughs> week. So we had to get another guy to sit on the couch with us. So we got uh, Justin here, Lewis here, and introduce yourself, mysterious guest. Yeah, we got uh, Mike here, Humongous Melonheads. I'm the only one not wearing a... Uh, you can call it a wife feeder. You can call it a guinea tea. Both those names are offensive, but I'm the only one not wearing one. He's fully covering his shoulders tonight. Yeah. Doesn't want to give us any stray erections. Also, <laughs> the only person to ever leave the league and come back, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. The prodigal son. Originally, Good Burger. Coming oh back God. is the humongous oh Melonheads. Good burger. What a I throwback. I names both in football and in baseball made no goddamn sense. I was That's what she said in football for a little bit. I don't know why. Honestly, at least you didn't have a, a shitty pun. That was a shitty yeah. pun. <laughs> that, that's not I don't know what it is, but it was. I, I always had a reference, you know. Um, so we have Mike here replacing Frankie because, one, Frankie's still at dinner, and two, Mike wrote a really cool article this week. Well, I, yeah, I appreciate all the uh, the kind words you guys have been giving me over text and over Slack. And um, after you guys wrote responses on Slack, I was going to respond, but then we had already scheduled going on the podcast, so I didn't want to respond on Slack, but then it looked like I just ignored you guys. <laughs> I, weird. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, but you did you did have some sort of friendship kindling with the Squirtle Sluggas, I believe. I mean, a little bit back and forth there, get to know you, how you doing? There was, and you should, you should, I mean, that's only what we were able to show you guys. And then, you know, <laughs> got way, that is, I can read it later, but that's all fair. That's you should awesome. see the masturbation chat. <laughs> Which is only me, but, like, seriously, guys, <laughs> I know that you guys are Mets fans. Guillermo, anybody else is a Mets fan, somebody else help me out in there. So, all right, who are the Mets fans? We have you, we have Guillermo, Jeremy, Mannheim, your, your new best friend. Um, we did have Wells, but R.I.P. Right. Are there Frankie's any other? At, I mean, he's he's about as Jewish as he is a Mets fan, right? <laughs> is that it for Mets fans? I feel like we're still missing one person, but then it's all Yankees fans, and then we got our our lone Rockies fan. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's, that's what it looks like. That's why every year Gary Sanchez goes in the fourth round, and then Nick Miller tries to trade him about this time every year. <laughs> Still not now working. Now he's being offered up for top-tier pitching, so now, now you can have him <laughs> on your team. Well, we all didn't have the chance to get him because he went so early, so I guess if there's I someone mean, who wants him. Nick, if you want Tanner Rorick, uh, hit me up, man. That, that top-tier pitching. <laughs> Big Tanner. He could help you. I mean, maybe you can give up some of your relief pitching because it's been so heralded over the past week. Oh, what a segue. Look at that. What a segue. Yes. I did write uh, an article on relief pitching. I had been thinking about relief pitching since before the season started. 
um, heading into the draft. And I just thought that it had, uh, it just provided terrible value in the draft. And well, you didn't take any of them. I didn't take any of them. I took Trevor May in the in the late twenties. Um, essentially, all the RPSPs I thought had value were gone. Talk about prodigal son, Trevor May, the only actual RP drafted by the Melonheads. Yeah. Well, to be honest, the RPSP you got was maybe the best pick of the draft. Yes. All right. So just quickly on on Tyler Glass now. I was standing in, in the draft. This is, this I guess, could have been included in my other article. The, what was he thinking? But I didn't. I was standing next to you for a little bit because the couch that you have in your basement absorbs heat like the sun. <laughs> and we were talking about someone else's pick, and you were like, "What a wasted pick!" And I was like, "Yeah, there's like tons of other guys that are still on the board that you're like you don't just take. I don't know, maybe it was like a third catcher or something. I don't remember. What, like somebody took a shit pick, and you're like, "Yeah, there's still Tyler Glass now on the board." I'm like, "Yeah, I don't really like him. I'm not gonna take him now." Like four rounds later, he's still there. And I'm like, I can't not take him. Tyler Glass now. Ace. Dude, yeah, honestly, if if he if you took him at that pick, if you took him five rounds yeah. before that, it would have been fine. It still would have been value. Glass now was a guy that, like, I loved before preseason started. And a lot of people loved him just because he was really good at the end of last year. He was striking out a ton of guys. He'd have, like, 10Ks in five innings. But then the preseason, he got hammered, and everyone was terrified. I was terrified. Yeah. You got him in the 20th round. Yeah. And that's the thing with, with Glass now, though, is that his issue is that his delivery is not repeatable. And so he has, uh, he often loses control of his pitches and it leads to just terrible outings. Which um, the story of the preseason was that he was again tinkering with his mechanics. And that is a terrifying thing to hear for somebody whose problem is that they have. Uh, non-repeatable delivery so we did not inspire a ton of confidence but yeah it took a flyer and it's it's really worked out ever since i mean he has 121 points so sounds like it's been good he's five and oh and he's just ridiculous he's also six eight two twenty so he is lebron james size by the way now you also did end up with austin meadows if i'm not mistaken right I ended up with Austin Meadows. So you that have was, the whole Rays end of that Rays Pirates deal for Chris, Chris Archer. Archer. Yeah. Austin Meadows was more of an on-purpose pick. I was more high on Austin Meadows. Um, and, yeah, he went down with an injury. But before that, he was also just murdering. So when he comes back, I'm, I'm hoping that he's he returns to form. But, yeah, I was, I was happy with both of those returns for sure. So we're here to talk about relief pitching. And before we get into relief pitching of this year – so much. I, I did want to turn back the clock a little bit and look at 2008, the first year of the New York Fantasy Baseball League, and see how we all valued relief pitching. And so I want to pose the question to each of you. When do you think the first relief pitcher was taken back in our 2008 draft? I think I know the answer to this, so I'm going to let Mike go for it. I'll say second round. I, I know I took mine stupid early. Lewis, what do you think? I'm pretty sure it was like in the first six picks. <laughs> so it wasn't that early. It was the fourth round. Okay. Oh. It was the fourth round. And do you know who that pitcher was? Edwin Diaz. I know. And they took him. Oh, oh, you mean, oh, 2008. Got 2008. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mariano Rivera? It was not. He was the fifth relief pitcher, relief pitcher off the board. He relief went, pitcher. Relief pitcher. 
Uh, Mariano went to Eric in the eighth round. No, in the fourth round, it was Jonathan Papelbon going to the jumping oh, toenails. That's going to be my other guess. And because we have Mike on the podcast, and Mike was around back in 2008, Mike, who was your yeah. first relief pitcher that you took back in 2008? Uh, Eric Gagne? It was not. It was no. in the sixth round. It was the Mariners' yep. closer. Oh, J.J. Putz. It was J.J. Putz. <laughs> That's the, right. The, I, looked at, I looked at this when I went to look at who I had taken, and I remember my, my ace was Ian Smell of the, of the uh, Pirates. And that's right, I had J.J. Putz. <laughs> the third relief pitcher taken off the board, so you've come a long way in terms of your relief pitcher strategy. Jesus Christ, yeah. Yeah, I've come a long way in terms of a lot of things. 2008 was forever ago. <laughs> Lewis, your first relief pitcher was Takashi Saito, in case you're wondering. Love me some Takashi Saito. Wow. So was fit? he good? That, he's probably pretty good. There's a couple people still being drafted. I know Ryan Braun was big back then. There's a couple yeah. people still Ryan have- Braun was a great story back then because... I've, who took him? Did Jeff take him? Somebody took him, and, and Justin was like, oh, terrible pick. I hate Ryan Braun. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, Ryan Braun's good. And he was like, no, no, no. And me and Justin didn't know each other well yet because we were like, we were, you know, in the beginning of our beautiful friendship journey. Different schools. And, like, two months later, who does Justin go and trade for? Ryan Braun. It's fine. It's fine. He probably gave up, like, a, a sack of old pennies. Opinions change, man. What can oh, I say? question. If you have the draft in front of you, where did Vladimir Guerrero go? Was he still in the league then? Um, he was. Yeah, um, where'd he go? I am, draft? We'll get there. Okay. I will look it up. But while I'm sorting on relief pitcher, because this is a very large spreadsheet, so it takes a little while to sort and filter. Uh, the very next year, Mike, in the first round with the fourth pick, you took K-Rod on the Mets. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Damn. Wait, was that his 50-save year, though? Or I think it was after? the year after his 50-save yeah. year. Yeah. That sounds like me. Um, the only relief pitcher drafted in 2008 that I can see is still playing right now um, is... I just had him. No, I lost him. What team? Uh, it's Joachim Soria. Oh, okay. So he's been around for a while. So let's take a look at Vlad Guerrero, because obviously his son debuted last week. And I was, uh, of course, Frankie took Vagrero in the 11th round. I can't believe that he fell to the 11th round. I kind yeah. of forgot about him after a while. I don't know about <sighs> I, I'm very disappointed in myself. I don't know why I didn't take him. I didn't. I have no reason. So Vagrero Sr. was drafted by Emmanuel Manolitis in the second yeah. round with the 18th pick overall. Greek man in skirts. Greek man in skirts. <laughs> Rest in peace, Greek man in skirts. He, hey, he may be yeah, back one year, you know? He made the playoffs, you said? I did oh, not. I said pour one out. I'm trying to see how many times he was actually drafted. And I think he may be the first father-son duo that we've drafted. Yeah, because we can't draft. I don't think anybody drafted Fernando Tatis, or, yeah, Fernando Tatis back in the day. I don't remember anybody owning him. So he was drafted by Greek Man Skirts both of the first two years. And then... Wow. The Comeback Kids, and then the Binghamton Bruisers in his final season as an Oriole. I forgot that even happened. Yeah, really. But that's the story of Vlad Sr. Yeah, Fernando Tatis is the only other one I could think of. But saw the stat that Max Scherzer struck out Fernando Tatis once in his career, so he's, he can actually strike out both. That'd be cool. Did you yeah. see his injury, by the way? 
when he got when he dodged the ball in the in the dugout or no was that him or or am I thinking of Luis Arias? Who's the shortstop oh, that? Yeah, yeah, for now it's yeah. He did split. Yeah, he yeah, split yeah. his nutsack open. Yep. No. No. Oh. <laughs> oh. oh no. <laughs> Good. But Fernando Is Tatis, there... not a relief pitcher, so we're not here to talk about him. No, we are not. Any chance that either of you know if this guy pitching tonight for the Padres, Cal Quantrill, is in any way related to Paul Quantrill, who was a relief pitcher on the Yankees back then? He is. Yeah, yeah. He is? Yeah, yeah. Is he really? Well, I mean, the last name is pretty unique, so I figured I'd ask. Yeah. So do the Padres just have, like, the sons of all the famous players? That's a pretty good bet. Besides <laughs> Vlad Guerrero Jr. There's Derek. I mean, I own Derek Rodriguez, son of Padre Rodriguez. Yeah. That's true. They may be the first pair that were drafted, actually. Oh, yeah. That's right. Although Derek and Vlad Jr. were technically drafted in the same year. I don't think anyone drafted Derek last year. No, Frank picked him up. Frankie loves him some young studs. Some D-Rod. Did you see who he picked up uh, for yesterday's start? Yeah, and it was a pretty good pickup. Yeah. The guy got... We can talk about the pickups later, but I have right. a whole thing on, on Griffin Canning. All right. He's got a thing on Griffin Canning. So, all right, so let's get back to relief pitchers. So you come into the year, you do not want to draft any actual closers, any actual relief pitchers. Your goal right. is... I think of them uh, similarly in the draft as I do uh, catchers, which is that they are consistently overdrafted because of what people think is position scarcity. Buster Posey never finishes within the top 50 offensive players, and he's always drafted in like the fourth round. That's an old reference, right? But, but right. it kind of um, stands with JT Gramuto now or anybody, right? Catchers and um, relief pitchers are constantly overdrafted because they provide so little, because the pool is so shallow. The thing about catchers, though, is that you only need one of them. The thing about relievers is that you need, in essence, three or four. And I think that the, I think that's what makes them the absolute worst position, even behind catchers is the disparity between supply and demand. And I touched on this a little in, in, the, in the article, but there's only 20 closers in the league, maybe 25 on a, on a good week. And we are supposed to be rostering 36 if everybody has one SPRP. Like, I, I think that that is sort of the source of a, a lot of the, um, the, the problems with relievers. Um, and to go to your, uh, Justin, your comment on my, um, on the post on Slack, where you showed the four quadrants of um, opportunity and talent, I think that actually applies to every position, even in baseball and football and everything. You need opportunity and you need talent. The thing with almost every position, though, in baseball is that we don't give a shit about the guys that don't have opportunity. We just don't own a team's second first baseman. We don't own a team's seventh outfielder, right? Nobody owns Keon Broxton. Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> but we have to own the relief pitcher version of Keon Broxton. We have to own the relief pitcher version of Justin Bohr. Like These are the guys that we shouldn't be owning, but we have to because of how many of them we have. Because in theory, the teams have tons of relievers. But even Andrew Miller... At like his prime, even Dylan Batances at his prime is just not useful. They're not getting. Uh, Josh Hader is the only 
exception to this, in my opinion. And now he's the closer, so he's just going fucking off. But I, I think that um, those those are the reasons that I was biased against relievers to begin with before I started looking at any numbers at all. Okay. Um, so here, here's what I'll say to that, and I'm going to disagree with you to an extent. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of looking at hitters in baseball and, and starting pitchers, starting pitchers for the most part outside of the Rays' new you know, opener-type model, yep. they pitch every fifth fifth day. Every fifth yep. game, you're going to get a start. And how if you do well in that start, you're going you're gonna to get more innings. And if you yep. do poorly, you are going to get a shorter leash and you're going to get pulled quicker. If you are starting in the lineup, it's not like the Angels can go and bat Mike Trout the, each of the first three times uh, they send someone to the plate. Mm. And then when he gets tired, they then oh. move to Albert Pujols or something like that. In football, you give the, let's call it the Le'Veon Bell, you give him the ball each of the first three times, that's opportunity taken away from a quarterback. Oh, that's fair. Whereas in baseball, every position in the lineup, with giving exceptions, you obviously want your hitters bang first, second, or third for runs and RBI opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but someone like Orlando Arcia, who bats eighth for the Brewers, plays shortstop, if he does start picking it up or change his approach or something like that, he will become rosterable just because he's still getting the opportunities. Whereas if he was a, let's call him fifth string wide receiver, he, he's never going to get that opportunity because no one's ever going to throw him the ball. They're not That's forcing him to get the ball. Yeah, that is uh, fair. And I do see what you're saying now. And whereas relief pitchers, if you suck, you're not going to get the ball. They're just never going to bring you in anymore. Yes, so but relievers I, are more akin to football players on that scale. That that's the point I was going for, but yeah. I, I agree with what you're saying too. And uh, Keon Broxton sucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. that was the point of that, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it was. If you could put him in for, if you can have him be the anti DH and just play defense and then not hit, that'd be great. Method, be method like that. You could do that with uh, Ligaris too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, Mike, what do you what do you think though about the fact that with with closers, like if you do have closers on a team, there are situations where you, they're guaranteed to be able to get like the equivalent of a home run on any given day, because any time their team is winning in the you know ninth inning by three runs or less, the closer is going to come in unless they pitch like you know five games in a row. So there's like you know. If you assume that, I don't know the, the numbers, but if a team wins, let's say, 45 games a year by, by three runs or less, sure. then those are 45 opportunities that they're guaranteed to get. I, and, that, and that is why I think, certainly more now after I actually did that um, analysis, I think that the top-end relievers who are guaranteed jobs on decent teams are, are pretty valuable. I, my opinion on on that on that group changed. The top fifteen maybe closers in the game. I I feel like I was undervaluing because because you're right. They are going to. I mean, they have the job for a reason. They're not you know they might come in and blow a safe every so often, but they're they don't suck right. They're not you, you they don't come in and you're not worried. But you just that's just not the case for people outside of. Even if you extend it to 20, it's outside of the top 20 people. That's just not the case. It's as if, so we start three outfielders. It's as if there were only 
at least everybody in the MLB only started with one outfielder. Or if we started rostering three third basemen each. Right, and and I can speak to a little bit about why we do that, why we do have sure. you know, four RPs on a team, and that the thought behind that is we need to create some sort of scarcity. If we only had one RP slot, everyone yeah. would wait until the 27th round to take an RP because you're guaranteed to get a closer because there's no reason for anyone to ever have more than one. So yes. we, we try yeah, to sure. create demand, artificial demand, and make that number, the number you mentioned of 36, is there for a reason, to make yeah. sure everyone isn't guaranteed a closer. So if you want a closer, you need to go up in the draft, or else, as you said, relief pitchers do become less useful. Yeah, I like that. I, and I, I, I assume you know this, and probably everyone knows this, but I certainly wasn't uh, complaining about the structure of the league or anything like that. I don't think oh, it should yeah. change yeah. at all. Agreed. But, yeah, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. What I would say, and doing this, I sort of thought about more, is maybe, I don't know what holds would do to the league. I know we've talked about it in the past, in like the off-seasons where we start talking about, you know, we start doing those surveys for rule changes. Holds might be a cool thing to look at. I'm not, I'm not even sure if that would change things, but yeah, it might be more value to people like, you know, um, Andrew Millers and, and, and those kind of people. Yeah, I, I do agree. It's something I think we did try out for a year or two. Oh, yeah? Um, I think one of the years you, you might not have been around, yeah. Um, I've been for a while, guys. The, and going into the draft, I mean, I'll be full, full-fledged full about my strategy with closers and that I've been burned by a bad closer one too many times and that I was really looking at the, you know, safe setup men Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I took Josh Hader. I had no issue with him. He he's not going to lose me a week because he's not going to hopefully knock on wood get me you know negative fifteen with a blown save and a loss in a start. Right. Right. Um, so I was looking at the guys like Hader, Chad Green coming into the year. Obviously that didn't pan out. Um, I currently have Jeffress on my team. What what round did you take Chad Green though? I was actually going to take him the pick after Jeremy Manheim took him before me. Oh, you didn't even take him. I, I didn't get him, but I would have taken him in the boot. If- Chad Green went in the uh, 25th round, so that's who cares at that point. But, um, but yeah, I think a lot of people had RP slots open on their team at that point. Yeah. Point being, um, w- one thing I did want to ask you, okay, so this strategy right now is working for you. What do you think about the diminishing returns on this strategy if, let's say, even one or two more people do try to implement this next year? The RP and SP... Demand goes up, and so yeah. the, the supply stays the same. And then what happens to the actual closers, since people are now not drafting them, is that they start becoming better and better values later in the draft. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there'll be an ebb and a flow. And I think, you know, if we kept all scoring the same, then we would just, have, you know, pendulum and someone else would come up with a different strategy, and we'd all, and, you know, maybe some people would follow that. Um, that would be interesting to see. The other thing about closers, and, and uh, uh, last year, okay, so two years ago I drafted um, uh, the guy who went from the Pirates to the Giants, Mark Melanson. He was garbage. Mark Melanson was so bad that year. He spent half the year on the DL and the other half blowing saves. And I spent like a like an 11th round pick, something half decent. It was before I had taken my third starter, right? And, uh, and I just... I hated it the whole year. And last year, I took some late 
like low end believers. I was kind of happy with it. It was fine. But what I ended up doing was picking up Brad Hand, Roberto Ozuna, and Ken Giles at the deadline. I got those guys for free or for a couple fab bucks, and they all were the they were the guys on their team for the entire fantasy playoff run, and they were all like top twelve. In that same vein, do you think that you're gaining so much in the first half of the season? No. <laughs> because what I was going to say is that you can still pick those guys up. Like, I have three closers right now. If if Shane Green gets traded and yeah. is the closer, I can just go bid fab bucks on whoever replaces him. Well, my, well, my thing is is to have I'm, – I'm monitoring the Detroit situation. I'm monitoring the, you know – the situations on, on crap teams with good relievers. And I think everyone should be. Um, and that's how I did it last year. I think whether or not I have a reliever or an RPSP or even a hold, like I have Julio Urias there right now. I have Bryce Wilson there right now. Bryce Wilson's getting me zero. Julio Urias last week got me 15 because he made two long relation appearances, but I'm not expecting to get any from him, right? Whether I have those guys or a reliever there, I'm still going to have the same late season strategy that somebody who owns a reliever who gets traded has also. So is the million dollar question, do you plan on keeping this strategy the whole year or at some point do you plan on rostering some actual release pitchers? Yeah, as soon as I see situations that open up that I think will be there for the long term, I've yet to see any uh, closer changes that I think are permanent. Philly with Hector Neris, I don't think that's permanent. Um, the Mariners with Rowanis Elias, I don't think that's permanent. Um, so you're really waiting for the trade deadline? Yeah, it's it's if it happens before a trade deadline, which it never does. I don't know. I, I don't know why most teams in most sports trade only at the trade deadline. But I'm truly waiting for the trade deadline. So let's say someone like Shane Green does get traded. If you look at the backup and you say, well. Yeah, he's the closer now, but I think he's absolute crap, and he's going to do more harm than good. You don't pull the trigger. No, but there are enough every year. There are, you know, a decent handful, five, six, that I can uh, drop some fab dollars and get. Maybe try to get them early. If not, then have to spend a little bit more. And and, and that's my and that's my plan. But don't you? So it sounds like what a lot of your reasoning is based off of at least right now how you're phrasing it is based off relief pitchers just being too pricey for their actual value in your opinion based on their volatility in the the draft i think they're too pricey and in and on your roster i would rather if i just can't win any matchups and i need 10 more points a week 12 more 15 more points a week i'll have to switch to relievers but if i can survive without having them i would rather roster you know, rookie pitchers or fringe pitchers who might turn it around or an injured guy than get that extra 12, 15 points a week. Yeah, and I, I mean, I very much respect that you're changing it up. But what I wanted to ask you is if we look at the draft for a second, I don't know if you guys have it pulled up or not. Yeah. But if we look where the meatiest part of the draft was for closers, right? I wanted to maybe do a little value assessment to see if looking back, you still agree that these other players that went in, let's say the 12th round, 
or the yeah. 11th round or the 13th round because those are kind of those three rounds where there were a lot of relief pitchers taken. Six, 16 had one, two, three, four, five, six. Six went in the 16th round, so right. half the picks in the 16th round. But those those relief pitchers are definitely of a lower tier. Those guys were like Jose Alvarado, Matt Barnes, yes. Wade Davis. Yeah. If you go up to the 12th round, there were a lot of like good quality relief pitchers taken. Yeah. Yeah. Of which only really David Robertson has been a bust. Yes. So looking at Felipe Vasquez, Brad Hand, Josh Hader, and Sean Doolittle there, and if you look up and down one at my picks, Kenley Jansen and Kirby Yates, who were also available in that area. Yeah. I mean, yeah, granted, those guys are doing the best out of that tier. But but like Josh Hader, Sean Doolittle, Brad Hand, Felipe Vasquez, they're all yeah. doing well. And then there's Rizal Iglesias, too. He's, he's doing much better now after a slow start to the season. Would you rather have had other guys who were drafted around here, like uh, Ender Enciarte, Eddie Rosario, David Peralta, D. Gordon, Michael Brantley, Marco Gonzalez, Edwin, like, just look at these guys around here. There's a, a mixture of different positions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I think the answer now is no, and I think that's the tier of pitchers. I think that's the tier of relief pitchers that I I whipped on. Um is not Edwin Diaz in the fourth, not like Trinan in the sixth, or Oldish Chapman in the eighth, and maybe not even Roberto Zuna in the tenth. But by the time you hit the twelfth, that's probably where I should have said, okay, Sean Doolittle is the Nationals closer. He'll probably be the Nationals closer all year. Go with him. Josh Hader is the special case because we didn't know he was the closer, but he is just nasty as hell, so it doesn't matter. But that is probably around the, the tier where I would say, um, those are the secure guys who will probably cost you about what they were worth. And I think that even bears out in the, um, in the chart I ended up producing of RP um, value versus average, which is where, you know, once you hit the 14th round, that's where it starts to absolutely just tank. But the guys in between, you know, the guys in the, the 10th, 11th, 12th round, they're actually, their value is above um, the, the rest of the, the team, right? In the, in the early, like the 8th, ninth round, and then right. the 12th round. That's the blue and orange chart on your article, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I think that, that is certainly something I didn't know going in until I did this analysis, and I'm not sure that the, I mean, the analysis isn't um, ironclad, but I think that is one thing that I took away is that. Oh, it is. You can't change it now. Your analysis was really good, um, and it it definitely is thought-provoking at the very least because it shows how easy it is to whiff on taking a relief pitcher. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. I mean, if you just look at the value after essentially the 12th round, it is just... Just absolutely, absolutely terrible. The the thing um, that kept running real, real fast. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to ask you guys if uh, it's lagging for you guys at all, because mine is lagging a little bit. Mine is good. Yours no, is good. Fine. Okay, good. But it's just me then. All right, continue. Ma, stop <laughs> downloading. <laughs> no, my laptop gets really hot. I don't know why. But. So, so the one thing that kept running through my head as I was reading the article is that it's extremely hard to win the league, right? And that's that's yeah. what we all play to do, 
right? We don't yeah. play to come in second. We don't play to make playoffs. We certainly don't play to come in 12th. I feel like your strategy is a very good strategy for someone who wants to make playoffs. But I, I feel like the winner of the league ultimately needs that lottery ticket of the mid or early round RP that ends up getting, you say, 45 saves, 50 saves, something like that. And, you know, look at Lewis's team where the past two years he's done an absolute great job drafting relief pitchers. I don't know what he knows about <laughs> relief pitchers. Honestly, it's it's a lot of – well, last year's was a lot of luck. I don't know why, but I always I always liked the Oakland Athletics as like a very underrated team. Yeah. And I feel like they're – Well, your bedroom wall there. is green. Yeah, I mean that's that's probably why. But I feel like their closers were underrated. It could have totally just been like, you know, a, a factless assumption that I had. But that's why I took training last year. This year was a little different. Um, I was kind of a pitcher list slave, the website. Um, and I straight up just went on the website and read their relief pitcher ranking article because Nick Pollock manages that website and puts up insanely in-depth analysis for yeah. like every single pitcher you could ever imagine. And he goes into – Things like uh, called strikes versus whiffed strikes. Um, and he goes into all these advanced stats, and he did it for relief pitchers. And guys like Kirby Yates stood out, uh, stood out to me because they had extremely high strikeout ability. And also, Yates in particular play, is playing for an improved Padres team in Petco. So I just liked all the things that were going on there. Jansen, Nick Pollock ranked as his second relief pitcher. I know that you guys were all scared of his, once again, his massively sized heart. But um, he fell to the 11th. That's why I took him because he was, I think, like the fifth relief pitcher off the board there. So I thought the value was all right. And then Shane Green was really a Hail Mary because it was him and Michael Givens were the only closers left on the board. And I had Shane Green last year. He has been <laughs> pure luck. Like, Shane Green should not be this good right now, and that was me just getting lucky on a wild card ticket. But he's also exactly like textbook the type of pitcher I don't think is going to help you at all in the playoffs, and doesn't help you win the league. That helps you make the playoffs. You're saying someone who will get traded at the trade deadline. Yeah, yeah. But how do you know that Shane Green will get traded? Now that he's good, I do. And if he was bad, then you would have dropped him already. It happens every year. But how do you know that he will get traded is just my question. There's never a situation where a bad team has a good relief pitcher and they just don't trade them? There is, but there's also but, – but all of all of fantasy is playing the statistics, and I think the statistics are well against Shane Green. That, I mean that's fair, but I think I got Shane Green in like the 19th or the 20th round. So yeah, I was willing at that, that – But yes, and that speaks to me getting tired glass now back there. It's like just complete fucking luck. Yeah. Right. I didn't. I, I did. I definitely didn't plan to get the number three starter on here, whatever he is right now, in the twenty-second round. After you had mentioned him five rounds earlier, and I finally just relented. And, and so, so my point for bringing all this up was to say that I I release the advanced analytics every single week, and we look at the last week, and Lewis has the <laughs> highest every single week. Well, every single of the past two. <laughs> yeah. And and we look at Lewis has the highest average points for by a decent margin and a very low boom-bust factor. He stays around 380 points somehow every single week. You look at someone yeah. 
Mike, I look at your team, a very mm -hmm. steady 306. You have the lowest boom bust factor. You stay around the low 300s almost every single week. Yeah. And I look at someone like Frankie, who Frankie averages 311. So between you and him, the average is pretty, neg pretty negligible, but yeah. his his variance is much higher. So I look yes. at that and I say, Frankie has a much better shot of beating Lewis because he has the potential to go above and beyond his 311 because it doesn't matter if he scores 300 and loses or he scores 200 and loses. Bang. And so yeah. if, you, if you have this strategy where you're capping yourself at 12 starting pitchers, but you have no relievers, mm -hmm. are you capping your total points for that you're going to score and you're never going to beat that one team who happened to guess right on all their lottery tickets and you're never going to do better than, say, second or third place in the league? In, in the regular season, yeah. Two years ago, I came in second on the regular season on a tiebreaker. I had the, the best record in the league. On a tiebreaker, I had second. I had the bye. And I got pummeled in the third place, in, in the second round, and then pummeled in the third place game, and I came in fourth. Last year, I, was, I also had a great regular season. I actually had a great playoff too. I just got very unlucky with the matchups. Uh, but the point is that I've had these really solid regular seasons, and this year my number one focus was really to get it a playoff-geared team. So I thought I was doing that by, instead of taking a lottery ticket on a mid-tier reliever that might blow up, I was taking a lottery ticket on a bunch of young or, you know, guys who get called up, guys who are currently injured, whatever, starters who I'll own who might become a guy who, who is helping me a lot in the playoffs and then move on, on the relievers later. Would you ever trade a relief pitcher who starts for a closer? Yeah. I, <clears throat> probably. Okay. So I'll give you my uh, Lou Trevino and you give me Tyler Glass now. That sounds good. Louis, <laughs> <laughs> you have any more questions? Um, yeah, I, I wanted to also go into a little bit about last year or two years ago, I forget when, I had put up an article going over this a little, but mm -hmm. as we reduce the maximum allowable starts per week, right now it's at 12, mm -hmm. starting pitcher value gets capped a little bit, not because we roster any fewer starting pitchers, but because we end up sitting more starting pitchers on our bench, and maybe they do have less value and we just haven't caught up yet, or maybe extreme volatility of starting pitchers with their you know shallowness at the top still makes them valuable i don't know that's a whole nother article we can go into but what i wanted to think about for a second was the complete opposite of your strategy mm -hmm. which is where a team gears up on getting three great closers mm -hmm. and then has a really good rpsp who is a reliever mm -hmm. that you can slot in daily or nightly in your starting pitcher slots. So now your flexibility comes in with your four SP slots. Yeah. You put your fourth relief pitcher there every night, like Julio Urias right now, for example. Yeah. And they net you 15 a week because they have two long relief appearances. Mm -hmm. Is that a strategy that you considered? Or is that a strategy you think is just never going to work based on relief pitcher volatility? No, I, I think that... Um... <clears throat> I think that could definitely work. I think the thing that would sink that is um, the two-week playoff format. I don't know if mathematically these, these – they must be right, and that must be just a perception in my head, but 19 starts for two weeks or whatever it is for two 
like 19 starts in those 10 days and 24 starts, I guess 24 starts in two weeks literally has to be twice, but it just feels harder to get to than 12 and having more starts in those playoff matchups just has, has been like a crazy value get for the team that hits 24. And there's absolutely nothing that can replace a three start week from like two solid guys or even one solid guy and when one really good two star week. You, there's no there's no combination of Cody Bellinger home runs and relief pitcher appearances that can replace like just an ace going off three times in a week. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, and I don't think that we're at a starting pitcher limit right now that that strategy really comes into play as extremely viable. I think it is viable, but it's probably not the best strategy right now. But I would be curious if we ever did yeah. get down to eleven starts per week, if that's the magic number, or if ten starts per ten might. 10 probably would be because it's very easy to hit 10. But I'm curious what 11 would do. Um, But yeah, that's just food for thought. This is a a very niche situation and not relevant really at all. But this week I have 11. I currently have 11 starting pitchers because I have Bryce Wilson and Julio Arias. It doesn't matter because I'm playing them. I'm only getting 11 fucking starts. I have no relief pitchers and I have 11 starts. (laughs) Erod's your only two starter this week. Is he That's even rough. going on Sunday? I think this no, he's going change. Saturday. I think he's going Saturday against the White Sox. Oh, is he? Uh, maybe I miscounted and I will hit it. I, I think it was so, so that's another really great point that I, I totally forgot about. But when you played me, you had 15 or 16 starts. Oh. So your margin for error was way bigger because it sucks when you have to make those matchup decisions, because a lot of times you just get them wrong because fantasy baseball is unpredictable. And if you get unlucky in the sense that maybe the day's off or whatever, your your starters get scheduled on the same two-start week, then what happens all the other weeks? Do you have to, like, scramble and change starting pitchers based on their schedule? <laughs> so, I'm yeah, the last two weeks I've had to sit two to three guys, and this week I'm Apparently going to hit 12. I guess I miscounted. I thought it was only hitting 11. I think you're going to hit 11. Uh, uh, 12, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there is a very weird, like, these guys' schedules are all syncing up, especially if they're all, like, number two and number three guys, um, which, like, everyone but Sale, or Sale is on his own schedule at this point. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that's essentially an issue that I'm running to uh, right now. And what I'll say about having to choose starters, though, is that I'll take it. If it ends up costing me points, then I'm putting that on me. Because I'd, I'd rather this be a skill-based, um, I need to choose who's the best pitcher. I need to look into the matchups, righty versus lefty, ballpark, weather, you know, all this shit. I, I feel like I'd rather put that amount of work in and get the reward out than just play, like, blah, here's my 10 pitchers. Two of them will get two starts, and I'll just keep them in my lineup. I never have to set my lineup even. Yep. Thought, Justin? Yeah, I think that I mean, when you face Lewis, I think you have the opportunity to play the matchups, right? And sometimes it'll line up where Carlos Rodon plays the Astros and you do not want to play it. And then there's going to be times where Chris Sale gets the Marlins and you're, you're going to want that matchup. And so I think that having the flexibility definitely allows you to pick and choose. I think what you're going through this week is somewhat of a non-factor because it's not going to happen that often. It just yeah. so happened that you're like 15 starting pitchers are each only <laughs> starting once. Super yeah, weird. It's pretty wild. Um, 
I, I'm I'm okay to pivot off of the RPs for a second and, and talk about starting pitchers because I think the one thing that your article highlighted is how bad we are at drafting starting pitching early you know, in the draft. Are we bad at it, or is it just that SPs are volatile and that's why they go early? But given the nature of starting pitchers, half the guys drafted are just going to not be as good as you hope. Yeah, I'm not sure which one it is, but to see that trend line just be constantly below was truly wild. I also have the round-by-round round breakdown in front of me. So starting pitcher, like I said, was the only um, position that was picked in every single round. And in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight rounds out of the 27, did they have a positive value for that? Average minus average without starting pitchers. So on average, 19 rounds, if you picked a starting pitcher, you were going to get a below average player for that round. So I thought what was interesting that you said, though, is that because we all take so many starting pitchers, they kind of have a relative value, even though they're even though they're, you know, less than what you could have got as an outfielder, let's say. Exactly. Because you need to keep up with that curve. Because that curve isn't, you can't like, yeah, you can't beat that curve. You have to be on it. Um, and your first year back in the league, that was kind of your experience. Oh my gosh, yeah. So yeah, my first year in the league, I took um, Jose Altuve, and then um, where did they get in the second round? I took Joey Bot. Oh, I took um, no, I took. Um, Nolan Arenado in the first round, and then I took Jose Altuve in the second, and then Joey Votto in the third. That was the year Joey Votto was the second overall hitter, by the way, behind Charlie Blackman. So I had three elite hitters all in the top 12, and I just bottomed it out because my pitchers were Matt Shoemaker, uh, Marcus Stroman, Mike Fulton-Nevich, just, uh, just absolutely guys that I could not compete with. Yeah. Um, and so that was a wake-up call. First, I had no idea how this league was going to play. Um, but that was sort of the wake-up call to last year where I, I you know, had a more balanced team. Uh, and then coming into this year, I was like, starting pitchers, we're doing this. I'm getting the elite guys. Sale, Flaherty, Clevenger. I felt so good on draft day. I, Flaherty had a couple faults, but he's already had like two or three 20-plus starts. Jeez. Yeah, Flaherty looks pretty good. His numbers don't bear it out, but he's great. Clev looked amazing. Clevenger was fucking dominating and then his shoulder starts to dislocate like he's a torn scapula muscle behind your your shoulder blade if he picked up and threw another pitch it probably would have detached completely <laughs> so yeah don't touch a ball for another two months or whatever you need just fine and then chris sale is chris sale i don't i don't even know how to cover chris sale at this point what i will say about chris sale is a stat i saw today that almost made me cry which is that justin verlander has had the second most has had the second hardest schedule by ex Wolba. So of all the starting of all the batters that these pitchers that every pitcher has faced, the ex Wolba I think Dylan Bundy had the first and Justin <laughs> Berger has had the second highest ex Wolba and he's still the number one pitcher in our league. Yeah. He has scored the most points and he had the second hardest schedule. Justin is glowing right now. He well, was my Go ahead Mike. He he was what? I was I had him ranked right behind Chris Sale. If Chris Sale had just fucking gone. <sighs> yeah, and if if I was in the same position, I would have taken Chris Sale. 
Yeah. I, I, I was thinking about this, like, going back in time, obviously with knowledge, I take Verlander, but going back in time, like, 99 times out of 100, I take for sale. I truly thought Scherzer, DeGrom, sale. That's who I'm getting. That's what I want. So I, I can't even, like, I'm not going to be mad. That, I think that that's how sale. everyone had them ranked. Yeah. Maybe no, not Nick Morano. Yeah. <laughs> Nick was, I don't know what Nick's ranks were. It was Kluber somewhere. Up. Yeah, clearly Kluber was at least in this top three of pitchers. Who knows if he built hitters should have, you know, maybe he would have taken trap or something, which I said I wouldn't have. I don't know. I mean, and, and that's, that's what I'm thinking is like, all right, yeah, we have this starting pitching sort of curve, but is Nick Morano really better taking Corey Kluber than Mookie Betts? I know Betts has had like somewhat of a down year, but Kluber has been pretty bad. Well, that's a great comparison. That's that's like the question that you just asked because that question is how do we want to draft? And yeah. the reason why I went so heavy with pitching is because I just remember last year if you feel like you don't have enough elite pitching, which inevitably happens to to people <laughs> most years, yeah. nobody wants to trade you pitching for your stud hitter. It just never happened. Like, I, I remember Frankie was talking to me a couple weeks ago because his team was really struggling, and he was thinking about trying to see what he could get for Bregman. And I don't know what he could get for Bregman, even though Bregman's incredible. You he have to be able to get Corey Kluber for, for Bregman. You have to lose a ton of value on hitters to get any pitcher. You have to go so far down the tier ranks to go the other way. Which brings us to the trade that happened in the league. There there was our first trade. It It was the first trade. It was kind of a very boring trade, I think, but but tackle it, Mike. It was hilarious that I'm I'm at work and I see the Slack notifications like, oh, I'm looking to trade – a starting pitcher for like a, like an outfielder for a space. I'm like, this is fucking perfect. Like, I'll go home tonight. I'll look at my team. I'll see who he's got. I'll send him like three different offers. This is gonna be amazing. I go away for a sec. I come back to my desk. I look at my phone, and the trade already went through. Yeah, it happened was, right away. That was the fastest that negotiations have ever occurred, and it was sort of a, a middle of the road um, trade. If that helps. Um, it was Daniel and Nick Morano, I think. It, would help won it. it was Josh Bell for Michael Walker. Yeah. I've never been a Walker guy, um, but I know that some people are. If he thinks that's going to help his team, then I'm, then he made it absolutely the right move because he moved a hitter for a pitcher, which is always, there's always what you want to do, I think. So here's, here's my thought about trading pitching for hitting is that we have nine starting pitcher slots and there's no differentiating between like a first starter second starter third starter but we have each individual hitting position and people draft in a way to fill up the positions and so if i have let's say i look at my shortstop right now it's elvis andrews who's doing great let's say bregman is shortstop only eligible and frankie's trying to trade me him i mean i already have someone in that position but we can always all of us can always upgrade our ninth starting pitcher Yes, I think it'd 100%. be it'd be different if we didn't have positions for hitters and we just had hitter one, hitter two, hitter three. Then I mean, I look at my team and let's say my worst hitter is, I mean, right now it's probably like Adam Frazier. I can always upgrade Adam Frazier with Alex yeah. Bregman, but yeah. because we have the positions, I do think it's different. That's, That's interesting. What about and I brought this up at some point last year, I think. 
if we had multiple, instead of bench spots, you wouldn't have to make the draft any longer. You wouldn't have to make the player pool any shallower. What if you just made more util spots? I've, what I was, I, I don't know if I did suggest it, but I had talked to Justin this year about adding both a fourth outfield spot and a utility spot. Because I do think we could benefit from increasing that relative hitter value a little bit. Yeah. But, but I, I don't know if, I feel like the pendulum might swing too far the other way if we had all of our bench slots active. I also think the decision-making might be a little brain-dead. Because like right now, I'm struggling really hard to figure out what hitters to put at my utility spot, or even my third outfield spot. So Chris Walker, Hunter Dozier. Yeah. Like for a while, it was Austin Meadows. Like guys, I'm trying to get it fit into different spots. Cody Bellinger's first base outfield very help, very helpful. But um, yeah, I agree with that. That's true. That that was the point that I kept going back and forth on, and we ultimately decided not to do it. I think because we were switching platforms, and I didn't mm-hmm. want to make too many yeah. changes. Yeah, which I think was a good idea. Um, the, I don't know if we add an extra utility and or outfield slot, does that increase the amount of strategy that we put in or does it decrease? Because yes, the players that you're rostering now makes more sense because let's face it, right now our fifth bench hitter, we're not playing probably that much unless he's your only backup at a certain position. I'm carrying the injured... Uh, Eloy Jimenez. I wouldn't drop Eloy Jimenez and it, anyway, but I have no problem keeping him in my actual lineup. Right. And and if we do have more active slots, yes, it matters more who is on your team, but again, it may take away some agency from deciding who you should be starting every day. If I don't have to make the decision between Elvis Andrus and Adalberto Mondesi every single day based off matchups, is that yeah. taking strategy away from the game? So, so let I, me... I kept going back and forth on those two points. I, I, I see what you're saying, and I, I think that this might have something to do with it. I think the same right now, and we just increased the active amount of slots. The waiver wire is just as deep, yeah. and every year, hitters on the waiver wire are insane. There's yeah. still guys out on the waiver wire right now who could be picked up, slotted into the active slots, and they'd probably score 20 points a week and help a team out. Maybe the answer, instead of just adding active slots, would be to increase the total amount of roster spots and make those two additional roster spots starting spots, where now we're, we're drawing talent away from the hitter pool on the waiver wire, and we're forcing everyone to actually pay more attention to who they're putting into their hitter lineup. That could be something that would... would be beneficial. I just picture Galembo yelling at his phone right now about having to do two extra <laughs> rounds in the draft. I, I, and I, I feel like that's inevitable for some people. Although I, I feel like maybe it's just me, but I always have a, a blast when we're drafting. I, I don't think another 30 minutes would, would hurt anyone. Especially this year we did it in like four and a half or five hours. Yeah, the in-person draft was a ton of fun. So yeah. I'm, I'm down. 30 it's, like party. it's like once once a year we do a giant party with, with everyone. Yeah, it's hard to get mad at that. Yeah. So what, what do you think as for what that would do to the, the meta balance? I think that it would make... I think the problem is if you just... You'd, you'd have to think about what positions you add. Because you could add a corner infield spot, right, the CI. You can add right. a middle infield, an MI. 
and you can add another outfielder, or you can add a util. And I think each of those does something different. Because just adding a util, I don't know how much that would really change. That's definitely the most brain-dead option. Because if you just added, yeah, if you added one more, if you added a CI and MI and one more outfield, I think that would do a lot more. Probably. I agree with that. That that makes a lot of guys like Carlos Santana, for example, who was great value because he went so late. Now all of a sudden maybe he's going in the sixth round because he's still going to score 450 points. And you need to roster three corner, right, essentially corner infielders. Right. Instead of two. So all of a sudden that, that turns going up. Could be something to think about. If anybody listening to this has any feedback, I mean, drop it in the comments. That'd be... That would be helpful. I also have zero desire to play in a two-catcher league, but if other people do, I'm down. It just seems like a terrible existence. That right now. Yeah, I don't think anyone would really want that. And I think the thought of those is still the same in terms of having to increase the demand so that people draft catchers earlier, but I really don't see us having an issue of drafting catchers. I think our catchers are actually pretty accurately ranked and drafted. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So we, we are approaching on the one-hour mark of the podcast. So, Mike, are there any other topics that you want to tackle for your appearance today? Yes. I wanted to talk about well, – well, first, okay, before – I know I, I ruined the, the um, segue, but I wanted to mention one stat that I did not include in the article because it didn't fit anywhere. Um, so when I was doing the average points per round, there's a general more points are scored at the beginning than at the end. Um, the first, the first three rounds, right? The third round, you have 90 points on average per player. It just happened to be the best round and insane. But at the beginning, you get seventies and sixties and at the end you have thirties and forties, but there's not an incredibly strong correlation when you just graph it out one to 27. I thought there'd just be like a really steep line with a negative slope and there's not. But then what I did was, uh, group it by day. So have day one, two, three, as if it was a, a draft, like a professional draft, where the first nine rounds are day one, second nine, and third nine. And the reason that there isn't that steep curve is because uh, in the first day, the average was 65, and in day two and day three, the average were 46 and 45. So essentially from rounds nine to 27, the average didn't fall off enough to actually make your your pick um, didn't, didn't make that curve fall off steep enough. And that's not to say that a ninth round pick is less valuable or, or is equally as valuable as a 25th round pick, but I think there were enough flyers like Tyre Glass now, um, like uh, Shane, Shane Green, that brought up the third day of rounds to the point of being essentially, if you look at it grouped, just as valuable as the second round, which I don't think is prescriptive or anything, but I just thought it was interesting. And I do have data from the drafts dating all the way back to 2008 if we wanted to expand this out some more. Um, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm willing to pr provide it and we can pull in some data. Um, just keeping in mind that the rules have changed throughout time. Yes. So maybe looking at like the last three years would be best compared to all 11 yeah, years. Yeah. That is interesting, though, because I do feel like every year there are so, – so even though there are late-round flyers this year that did it, I feel like last year Blake Snell went late. Um, Two years ago, Aaron Judge went in the 24th. Yeah. Yeah, so every year there's a guy or multiple guys that end up just way outperforming 
and they're usually drafted towards the end. Yes. And the way that I sort of knew that there was still more value in day two than day three, even though um, even though their averages were very similar, is that the standard deviation was greater for day three and for the later rounds than for day two, um, even though the actual averages were slightly lower, which means that a greater percentage of the the you know the error the error bars grew as a draft grew right on. and that makes sense which means that at the beginning you're getting very reliable high scores and at the end you're getting very you know you're getting these outliers of very high scores and then a lot more guys who actually have zero so far and so that's kind of where where that came from but I just thought that was an interesting thing that I noticed yeah that is all these all these statistical analysis are are very helpful I think for helping everybody kind of understand what they should be looking for and yeah. where they can kind of like put, you know, their risk because that's, that's kind of what the draft is. That's what fantasy is. It's choosing where you want to take that big gamble or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that before, I don't know if, if you're trying to wrap things up, Justin, but I, I do think that since we didn't go over any of the, uh, the matchups from last week, that maybe we could do some name game stuff just to kind of cover some of the uh, specific player player standout performances from from last week sure all right so if you go to the players tab and then you sort by all under status and team wait i think my fan my fan tracks is broken guys (laughs) why was he doing yeah would you, sorry, I was too distracted trying to make that joke to even understand what you said. You so so I, do want, I do want to talk about this as we get people on the podcast. Is how, how do you feel Fantrax is? You can compare it to ESPN. You can compare it to Yahoo, standalone platform. How has your experience on Fantrax been so far? I always liked Yahoo better than ESPN anyway. I did um, The year before I came back to this league, I did a baseball league on Yahoo um, with um, a guy from work. And uh, I liked it better than ESPN anyway, but Fantrax has been by far my favorite. Um, there is a certain amount of, there, there was a certain amount of learning in the first few days, but once I saved my defaults and figured out where everything goes, um, I've, I, I'm a big fan. I think that the web page is better than the mobile app. So if you're main interaction with Kim Smith is anyway uh, very nice I think your inter, I think if your main interaction with fan graphs or fan tracks is through the mobile app you might not like it as much as if you use it through the website mostly but uh, uh, I, I'm a big fan okay. that's good to know I just that picture Nick Miller going to town on himself as you were talking about Yahoo <laughs> <laughs> um, so Last week, one of the big standout guys who I think was a bit underrated, I had him, and he's pretty solid, um, was Mike Miner, who decided to go the hell off last week and really, what did he get, a 34-point performance? It was something ridiculous. 32-point. Oh, no, yeah, two, two starts ago, he had a 34-point performance. The start after that, he only got four points. And then his most recent start, he got 32 points again. So 
I don't know how you guys want to do this. If you want to do name games, if you want to maybe I'll pick five pitchers and you rank them, or if you want to just tell me if you think it's real or fake. You guys have any preference? Uh, I'll go fake on Mike Miner. We can do a name Mike Miner, but okay. You want to tell me why? He just has what? What is it? What? What is in a? Hold on, I'm on his. What is in a 31 year old to all of a sudden drop his ERA by two full runs? What is in? You know, FIP is not perfect, but he's a full run below his FIP. He's a full run and a half below his ex-FIP. Um, he's, he's sporting a 204 BABIP, which is. Uh, and an 81% left on base rate. What's his homer to fly ball rate? Uh, 11. 20. I think it's 11. Yeah, that's um, actually kind of in line with his rest of his stuff. But but not in line with pitching in Texas. Where are you seeing no. 11? He's in a... Huh? Where are you seeing 11? On fan graphs. It's 11.1. Oh, that's weird because Fantrex has it as 12.2 hmm. on Sabermetric tab. That's weird. But I anyway, mean, yeah. Maybe one is classifying certain line drives as fly balls. Yeah. Um, All the other yeah, – each website actually, yeah, can classify their pitches their own way. Like Baseball Savant can be different and stuff like that. Baseball Savant's really cool because it shows you the spin no, rate. No, you're only allowed to use pitcher list. Everyone can only have one tool. You're only allowed to use pitcher list. I wanted to know why Joe Musgrove was doing well even though he had decreased a mile an hour on his his fastball. And it turns out that he increased his spin rate by like 100 spins per second or, or something. So I thought that was interesting. Off the yeah. baseball but but uh, sorry to cut you off, Mike. Go, no, go on. His, his Sierra, which is basically a projection-based uh, ERA, ERA metric, is up at 403. His hard-hit contact so far is down. From his from from last year, four points, and, um, and and there's just no reason that it would be. Did he? I don't think he added another pitch. He didn't. He's throwing his changeup more than last year. Is it that good a pitch that that's what's driving it? I, I would also say his swing strike rate is up at the highest of his career, even when he was a dominant reliever on the Royals. This is his it, highest swing strike rate. And so what's that telling you, Justin, that more batters are swinging at pitches? Well, his K, his K per nine is only up slightly. So I don't know. His – okay. So I think I, I think I might have found it. And I can't tell you whether this is real or not. I just don't believe it is. He has the, a massive dick. His, <laughs> his value on his changeup uh, about four times his career – Average the value of his changeup. Yeah. So either he figured out something ridiculous without changing teams. I don't know if Texas changed their pitching coach, but there's just nothing in it for me that that screams. And he's 8.6 K per nine, which is still above average, but it's still below where you want it to be. Okay, I mean that's fair. I don't. I didn't expect you to uh, want to trade your ace for Mike Miner, but that's interesting that you're you're low on him. Um, how do you feel about Mike Miner compared to a guy like Matt Boyd? This is this is me pulling a U and going pitcher list. Right. 
absolute slave, but I, I'm a big Matt Boyd fan. Okay. Nick Pollock completely. Because Boyd is kind of the opposite story. Boyd's having a great year, yeah. but Boyd's advanced numbers kind of say that he's been pitching better than, than it's showing. Yes. And, um, and, and, and again, I... I, did, I wasn't looking at Boyd before the season started, but Nick Pollock and, and Alex Fast have just been going off on Matt Boyd. And so it forced me to look at him. And I've just really liked what I've seen. That was an incredible value pick. At first, I thought that he was like available. And then I saw that he was drafted. I was like, oh, of course he is in the future. So kudos to, was it Jeff? No, who? Uh, Nick Miller. Nick Miller. Kudos to, to, to Nick Miller for, for picking Matt Boyd because that is a hell of a pick, man. So, so what, what did you see in Boyd from last year? What made Boyd's breakout possible? Me. Anyone who wants to answer. Because, I mean, his, his velocity isn't up. He's getting more swing strikes. What, like, how is he locating his pitches better? Because I'm assuming that that has to be it then. Go to pitcher list, man. <laughs> That's what, the thing about Matt Boyd and me is that I was just completely, like, bought in it's not like some other pitches where i like have actually done the research on yeah i mean my only point about that is that there's nothing in matt boyd's profile from last year that shows that this breakout should have happened true his k rate's up for no reason so uh, unless there's like actual like pitching change mixes or he learned a new pitch or he learned a new grit then i don't understand why this was called by nick pollock i'll give you that I mean, obviously the guy's the guy's amazing, and he's co-owning Lewis's team to a four and zero record. So <laughs> he's actually not. He's pretty down on a lot of my uh, the guys that are backpacking my team. Uh, he was pretty low on Shane Bieber and uh, very low on Joe Musgrove, who I was high on. So uh, suck my dick. He, he's also co-owning <laughs> the Brawlers to a one and three record. So. <laughs> um. All right, so I kind of also, in that vein of uh, those advanced numbers being worse, like Mike Miners, how do you guys feel about both, um, where was he, Jose Berrios and also Patrick Corbin, who are both, well, Berrios is more extreme. Um, Berrios' ERA is 297, his FIP is 375. Corbin's a little less extreme, but mm-hmm. a week ago it was, it was more. Uh, his ERA is gone up to 358 his fip is at 370 how do you feel about both of those guys the main reason i was off of patrick corbin coming into this year was well i guess there were two main things one was the scenery change i i have no idea what happens when you get a gigantic contract with a brand new team and i didn't want to find out up close and personal uh and the other reason was that weird dip they had in the middle of the season last year where he like, couldn't hit 91 anymore and then all of a sudden picked it up later on in the season. I didn't know what happened. Uh, he never went on the IL, or I guess back then it was a deal. Um, and he just went from being an absolute ace and it looked like Frankie was going to just go undefeated because he had the best pitcher in the league to being somebody who looked like he needed some type of like thoracic outlet or something. Um and so I just stayed away. But if neither of those things are still hampering him and he's got the national lineup behind him, so he's going to get wins, he's going to get you know more leash in outings, I, I think he can be, I think he can match last year's numbers. 
I think Corbin lived in a weird space this year because um, he was kind of in between the like 1A pitchers, I would call them, sort of like the, the Blake Snells, the I had Syndergaard in there, maybe incorrectly. Um, and he was kind of above the 1B pitchers, who I would call like the Berrioses of the world. Um, I think him and Walker Bueller kind of lived there together. And Bueller was there because everyone thought he had this stuff, but he may get capped at like 140 innings. Mm-hmm. I think that Corbin lived there because, one, he's never done it before outside of last year. Two, the reasons that Mike said about the velocity change. And three, he was coming off of his contract season and he just got paid. Um, yeah. So I think that he did kind of live in a weird space where he was... I think he went to the right team. I think he... Did Ben draft him? I think Ben drafted both both of them. Yeah, he got both of them. Yeah, I think that's the right way to go is that Ben didn't have a 1A pitcher because he had Trout, and then you yep. take both those guys and hope that one of them turns into the 1A. I just want to point out that this is a, a sitcom in the making. Ben and uh, Patrick Corbin and Walker Bueller all living in the same weird space. <laughs> Measuring necks. <laughs> and neither of those guys has a neck to satisfy Ben. No. That's why that's why Bueller's been disappointing this year. Um would you rather have Berrios or Corbin? Ooh. I would say Berrios because of um the AL Central. The AL Central offenses, I mean the Indians you expect to come around eventually. Maybe, but the rest of the, the division is just so bad. Um, and the MLS, yeah, he doesn't have to face the Nationals, but the Phillies are no joke at all. The Braves, no joke. And, I mean, maybe it's just me being a homer, but the Mets are have a pretty good offense. Yeah, they've been hitting. Um, One nothing Cincinnati in the ninth, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they lost on uh, Monday also, which was embarrassing. I yeah uh, neither, neither um, of these two guys to me have really deviated much from my preseason opinions. I had Corbin slightly over Berrios. I think I was somewhat higher on Berrios than most. Um, I still take Corbin above Berrios, but I do think that Berrios has proven that he does belong in that one B conversation. That I have him with someone like Flaherty. I have him with uh, maybe a little bit above a Tyone type, but I, I think. Berrios is proving he's, he's lowered his walks, which I think has helped, even though he does have a fairly favorable BABIP and left on base percentage. Okay. So now let me ask you. Do you want us to okay. ask you? No. No. I'm, uh, I'm undefeated right now. Jose, I, Jose Berrios, Patrick Corbin, or Corbin Burns? <laughs> Fuck, Mary kill. Um, well... I'm probably going to pity fuck Corbin Burns because he just looks like he needs it. I don't know. Um, and the other two, it's a toss-up. The toss-up between marrying and killing? Yeah. That's a pretty stark toss-up. <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys about um, other pitchers because it sounds like you guys think that both Corbin and um, – Barrios are like firmly in that, you know, 1A, 1B, whatever you want to call it, tier. Um, how about these new up and coming guys? So, like, let's just do lightning real fast. Would you rather have Corbin, Barrios, or Luis Castillo? Luis Castillo. Justin? Corbin. Corbin. Okay. How about 
Corbin. Uh, actually, let's take all those guys and Tyler Glass now. Corbin. Okay. All those guys. Herman Marquez. <laughs> Castillo. Corbin. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Of the three new guys, how would you rank them? Castillo, Herman Marquez, Tyler Glasnow. I'll, I'll probably go Castillo, Glasnow, Marquez. Okay. I, I would do it as you listed them. Castillo, Marquez, Glasnow. Gotcha. So is that not at all believing in Glasnow, or is it just you like Marquez? It's... And we're looking at just this season, who I would rather own for the rest of the season. It's just, yeah. I don't feel like Glass now has done it long enough for me to become a full believer. Yeah. I I still somewhat feel like, I feel the same way with Castillo, too. That any day now, they could just go back to walking five people in six innings, and the bottom falls out. That's true, but I don't think any of the guys listed have shown the highs that Luis Castillo have shown. His... He's got like the nastiest changeup in the league. I think literally has the highest uh, value of any changeup. Even more than my man Trevor Richards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty. I'm pretty high on Luis Castillo. Yeah, that's that's kind of why I asked because all those pitchers are, are they they all have a question mark next to their name for some reason, and <laughs> at the same time they're all excelling. In different ways, Castillo does. Castillo and Marquez kind of scream the most upside, I think, out of all those guys. But the other thing about Castillo and Marquez is that they didn't change anything. And Tyler Glass now added a curveball. He just straight up chose to throw a curveball, and now he's doing that instead of his slider, which we also often get just completely demolished because of his ridiculous arm length that he just can't release it at the same point every time. And sometimes he would hit your foot, and sometimes it would just like go into the stands. So if he if he has if he could throw in like a reliable changeup in just in half, he would be completely nasty because he's just making. I think that repertoire change is an actual legitimate, like good move for him. Yeah, I mean, I think we know the question marks around these people. For Marquez, it's all ballpark. I think it has to all do with cores. Maybe a little bit of sample size that he's done it for maybe nine months now. Um, for Glass, now it's completely sample size. And for Luis Castillo, it's a little bit of both in terms of, one, he's never really shown this type of level before, and two, his home ballpark sucks. True. Yes. So, since we're talking about these pitchers who are kind of trying to rise into the next level, um, how about, what do you guys think of my man, Caleb Smith? He's the best. I can't believe Caleb Smith. When you told me to do this thing that I did, I think, when I wasn't listening to what you were saying, and just ranked players by points, he's the seventh highest just fucking player. <laughs> what? Who? I didn't even realize. My man. Caleb Smith has starts of 24, uh, including tonight, 26, 22, 24, 25. And he's facing Cleveland, which, again, maybe they're garbage right now. Philly, Washington, Philly, Atlanta, and the Mets. And it's just 14-plus, 20-plus, just everywhere. Yeah, and good job to us, because if you look at the, the owners next to these these highest players, you got Bellinger, that's you, yeah, Kristen Yelich, and Justin Verlander, Trevor Bauer, 
and Ben comes and fucks everything up with Luis Castillo. He's got Yankee <laughs> and Caleb. And then, and then you got Glasnow. And, and Garrett Cole, right? On the top Garrett, wow, wow. Look at that. And Adalberto Mondesi below that. That's what? right, boys. That's <laughs> right, boys. What <laughs> today? <laughs> it was just a double header against Ryan Stanek and who was the other Blake starter? Snell. He fucked oh, up Blake Snell. That's yeah. crazy. But Blake Snell, he's missing a foot. Just a toe. Uh, just a toe. Isn't that, I mean, that adds to the second round being, uh, Blake Snell's fine, and he was murdering it before this. But that adds to the, the struggles of the second round. But it's pretty yeah. interesting. Adds to the struggles of Frankie's team. Man, <laughs> guy can't catch a break. He won last so, week. But... Transitioning to Frankie's team, which brings me to pickups, which is something we still wanted to talk about. Two, two um, waiver periods ago, last Wednesday, I wanted to add Jared Eikhoff. So I put in a $5 bid. And Frankie also put in a $5 bid, and he got him because of the tiebreaker on record. And now on Sunday, I wanted Griffin Canning. Canning. He's not an MLE pronunciation guide, so I don't know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> and I'm going to leave you a snooty comment on Slack. Correct. <laughs> Frankie also put in a $5 bid on Griffin Canning and got him again. So twice the tiebreaker has gone to him in two consecutive periods, me trying to get these goddamn pitchers. And they're both looking really solid. Jared Goff went the fuck off this weekend against the Rockies. And Griffin Canning yesterday in four and two-thirds had like seven strikeouts and was just looking every bit. I think he had eight swinging four innings. Yeah. Every bit the dominant like prospect that, that he's supposed to be. I don't know what kind of innings he's going to get. But it's the Angels. They're not clamoring to like. It's not the Dodgers, right? Like when a prospect comes up the Dodgers, you don't know what's going to happen. It, it, nobody's pitching for the Angels. I think Matt Harvey still starts two out of every five games, so <laughs> they could use they could use the stars. So kudos to him. I don't know if you guys have a feeling on, on Griffin Canning. I mean, I think Frankie's the best in the league yet going to the park and just looking at the little kids and scouting them. Staring at those asses, those young asses, and those metallic little. Basketball shorts, just scoping them. <laughs> I wish I had those abilities. I, it's not for lack of trying, believe me. <laughs> I'm there. Just my binoculars are worn out at this point. But that, speaking of these young kids, uh, this is a pickup that a lot of people probably just overlooked. But Jeremy, my new best friend, picked up Jesus Lazardo yes. for zero dollars. Yes. Well, who, he's he's still in the minors. He's. It, he's only in the minors because he's on a rehab stint. He okay. would be up if he wasn't injured. I was going, he was like, when I was making my draft lists, I was like, draft Jesus Lizardo, draft Jesus Lizardo. And then he got injured, and so I didn't. The second or third waiver period after the draft, Nick Morano tried to add him for $10. <laughs> so, but of course, and just heads up, Nick, you can't have more than nine starters. You've made three bids that failed just because you tried to add more than nine stars. But one of them was for Hastings Cesaro for $10. And that just goes to show, like, the hype for this guy. Like, getting him for zero, maybe, you know, he'll probably have to hold on to him for a little bit. But that was a, a very savvy move by, yeah. by Jeremy. So kudos, kudos to I him. I think Jeremy – so last year, Jeremy made the playoffs for the first time. I don't know if it was ever, but it seemed like the first time in a while where he was always on the cusp. He was always like the seventh or eighth seed. You he know, should have beat me. But um, 
Yeah, you always do that where you're like, oh, I'm gonna lose. I should lose, and then he really should have beat me. There was I had no business winning in the first or second rounds last year. Well, anyway, what I think was the one thing that Jeremy didn't have was was depth last year. Mm-hmm. Like he had good players at the top, and then I remember his team kind of struggled at the bottom, and so. My one recommendation to him was that he should really go ham on, on waivers this year and, and try to utilize the free agent bucks a little more. Because I, I think a lot of times we're way too conservative with our free agent bids. If you want somebody, go get him. But um, he's killing it right now. He, like The yes. guys he picked up this week, he picked up Gio Gonzalez, worth a flyer. Um, John Means, really, really exciting pickup in John Means. Yeah. And then, you're right, he picked up um, Lazard. He also picked up... Mike Soroka, which we can now circle back to Frankie. Yeah, good job, Frankie. The weirdest pickup Soroka, drop him before start. Now he's a stud, couldn't get him. And and uh, Jeremy ended up with him for, oh, the ads, bad dollars are not there. But uh, it was a little bit more than, than Frankie picked. It was eight bucks, which, if I remember which, correctly. Which is very much worth it. It's, it's for so two. Cheap. I had a $1 bid when Frank got him for two. But, yes. Mike Soroka is a, a, a monster, and that was a great pickup. He also picked up Michael Chavis. So he's on the ball this year on, on these young guys and yeah. just games in general. So, good. so he's been helping him. It, I, like, I don't know. Jeremy's yeah. shown a lot of potential. I know he's, he's a big boom-bust team in Justin's article, but yeah. he's definitely showing the potential to have those big outbursts. Yeah. And hopefully these pickups will give him a little more stability, especially as guys like uh, Mike Miner have been, you know, They've been good right now. Hopefully for him, those guys keep going. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, uh, yeah, kudos to to Jeremy for that. All right. Anything else you guys want to cover? Well, I think I think we should note that Mike had a, a pretty good pickup himself. He got Carter Keyboom. Yeah, Carter Keyboom um, had a monster weekend and an introduction to the show. Number of home runs, and then first two games in my lineup, zero and minus one. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be hanging out on my bench until you can show that that you've got what it takes. But um, he's definitely somebody that I'm excited by. Um, Trey Turner is going to come back at some point, but even if he doesn't, Brian Dozier kind of stinks, so he could probably take Brian Dozier's spot. Um, and I think if he's hitting the Nationals or a team that needs to win games, then at least it's tough. So they're not going to just start. Dusty Baker's not there anymore, so they're not just going to start <laughs> better. It's just fucking because. So I, I think that Cardi Boom has a, a real path to playing time. Yeah, I like the pickup. The young guys always, you know, they, they strike out a lot. So yeah. that's the downside. But honestly, if the guy figures any bit out, his potential is so high that he, he, could, he could be great. Yeah. Agreed. Anything else you wanted to cover, Justin? No, I got to go make some pickups because Derek Holland got put on the DL. So <laughs> I have an open pitcher slot now. That's why you're rushing. Yeah. Not all of us have cushy law jobs where we could do pickups all day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How about you, Mike? Anything else? I think we covered, uh, I think we covered everything. I got to touch on the article, which was... Good to hear your feedback, and I think that um, sort of explained myself in full and, and hear, what, hear what you guys thought about that. And then I wanted to touch on the pickups and 
a frustration with bidding the same amount as Frankie every week. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think we definitely want to have you back on sometime later in the week. You, you yeah, want to do some breaking news here, by the way? Sure. We can break okay. news on the podcast. Uh, Corey Kluber has a non-displaced fracture in his right ulna. He'll be reevaluated in Cleveland tomorrow. Oh no! Wow! Not, not Did the we ulna. curse him? Maybe we might have cursed him. We also no. cursed Corbin Burns, who came in and started immediately giving up runs after you said you would pity fuck him. Yeah, we didn't curse him. That, <laughs> that is exactly what he was supposed to be doing. Uh, so, Mike, you're sciencey. Where is your ulna? What is your ulna? Ulna. <laughs> that I do not. Is that your elbow? Uh, it looks like a forearm. That's not good. Yeah, you're right. Forearm. All right, oh. we'll, we'll follow up next week. The thinner and longer of two bones in the human forearm. That doesn't sound important for a pitcher. He's fine. Not his right one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yikes. The Indians can't catch a break. It's a good thing Nick Morano traded for Michael Waka. What? <laughs> This sounds like this. This sounds like a curse of uh, Chief Wahoo telling them get rid of the. You know, they got rid of the logo this year. Now they're telling them to get rid of the name altogether. It's true. It's very true. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I think it was great. Yeah, I think the really audience will really enjoy listening to you when Frankie gets back from dinner. He can join us again. <laughs> um, but un- until then, uh, we'll keep looking for guests. Yeah. Yeah. Hope to have you back. Um, thanks yeah. for thanks for having interest. Because honestly, like, the first time probably seems intimidating to come on and do one of these things, but it's a lot of fun. So, Yeah, oh, absolutely. All right, great. So for Lewis and for the Humongous Melonheads, Mike, thanks for coming on. Uh, I have been the Colorado Crush, and we will see you next time. Peace out, guys. Peace out.